0: You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. Oh, Tracy, what the hell day is it? I don't know anymore, but hey, we're here and we're recording, so that's always cool.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's the timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbliness of podcasting being what it is. What? what does it matter what day it is, man? By the time people hear this, it'll be some other day. And, you know, it's practically like hitting a reset button. (laughs) (laughs) Although on the theme of timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbliness, we were actually just kind of green room chatting with our uh, guest here about things kind of coming full circle because right around the time, actually, that I started on the podcast, I think that this was like first podcasting thing for our guest and first podcast hosting thing for me we had ryan van loan on for the launch of his trilogy which began with the sin and the steel and then we had him on about a year later give or take for the second book he knows all this because i keep
0: tagging him i keep tagging him on the twitter posts
1: you do, yeah. Like it's like it's like the ex who won't quite get, like, lose your contact info, I guess. But now we've got the third book in the trilogy, "The Memory and the Blood." Ryan, are you exhausted? Are you tired of us? Like, what's going on? <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, no, not at all. I'm uh, I'm re-energized, and and thank you, Patrick, for the tags. Everyone's going to see that pop up, and it's it's always a good memory. No, I'm excited to be back.
1: So, okay, have to ask the question because f- this is something that I have not yet done myself as a writer. And so I'm I'm always interested in where writers land in the course of the process, but completing a series. Like what is the sort of emotional journey that you're on getting there and then now and and we are July twelfth is is when the book hits the world, but it has been out of your hands in a sense for a while now.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I wrote this actually the summer of lockdown. So summer of twenty twenty. Which, you know, I think if we all can cast our memory back into the decades before when 2020 was, you know, that was, that was just a really rough summer, I think, for everyone. Um, I work in healthcare uh, in my day job, and so we were putting in some pretty crazy hours trying to stand up things to go virtual, which, you know, dragging healthcare into the 21st century, you know, had the you – know, my debut was coming out in July – I was editing book two with my editor and then I owed book three by the end of the summer. So it was a whole thing. But, um, I think I talked about this maybe in the first podcast we did together, but you know, writing is kind of my, um, kind of my Zen time and, uh, kind of therapy for me. So actually, although I thought it was going to be difficult, it was a, a lot of fun. It helped me get through that summer. I actually ended up turning it in about three weeks ahead of schedule just because, it, it came together so fast. Um, and, every and writer who
1: listens fun, right? to this, every writer who <laughs> listens to this, except Sean and McGuire, who also does that, now hates you. So you've <laughs> you've just hit like the top <laughs> of all the writer community's enemy list. Well done,
0: well done, sir. Well, when you yeah, when you, no, sh- when, you when, <laughs> when you when you when you introed him and you're talking about you know uh, you've done something I've never done. You finished a series. I felt so fucking seen. My God, like I've never finished a series either. Shut up. Oh,
1: well, I'm sorry. I mean, this isn't supposed to be about us, Patrick.
0: This is about us.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, in in my defense, this is the first series I finished, and the first time I went through it. So it was. I tell you what, though, it was a lot. I don't think you know how you finish a book, and you kind of have that, you know, on we after the fact for like a week or two, where you're kind of just like wandering yeah. around in a daze. I didn't have that at first and i thought like oh okay i i missed it like it's good like i'm on to the next thing and i'm just energized and then like about a month later we went to the beach we were lucky enough we were both working from home and we were lucky enough to be able to get an airbnb on the beach for a couple of weeks and just work from there because you couldn't go anywhere it was still still kind of locked down before vaccines and um that's when it really hit me i think like we were down in north carolina like off the waters where Blackbeard used to, used to haunt those places and just walking the beach. And it just like nailed me. And I couldn't like write or think about writing for about two months after that. I think like it just finally just sunk in and it wasn't a bad feeling, but it was definitely like, a uh, wow. Okay. I did that. What's next. I don't know what's next. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and so that was a whole thing.
1: So I do want to hear about what's next, but I don't want to sort of preempt the, the whole thing that brings us here, but our- it is enormously difficult to figure out how do we how do we Patrick how do we do this You're so much you're so much more experienced than I am How do we get Ryan Van Loan this articulate wonderful gentleman to talk about the third book in a trilogy without asking him to spoil all his damn work
0: How do we I, do I this? have I, I have told this story before <laughs> uh, You know it's it's funny because I I look at Gail Carriger. Yeah. So Gail Carriger has written a ton of books and she will go and she will do the book tours and she's in the Barnes and Nobles and the Tattered Covers and the Powell's and you name it. And she walks in and she's like, yeah, I'm doing a reading and I'm going to talk about this book. And, you know, this is a, this is the sequel to XYZ. Uh, At this point, XYZ has been out. I'm going to spoil stuff. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, you know, if you're here to buy the fifth book in the series, I'm spoiling books one through four because I have to, to talk about it. So like, it's just, you just have to do it. You, like, like you can mitigate it as much as you want, but mm, yeah. I mean, the reality is, you know, folks, this is the third book. Uh, we have, we have tried to get you to buy book one. We've tried to get you to buy book two. Now book three out. Hopefully you've bought book one and book two and read them. If not, yeah. Hey, or, Ryan's going to talk know. about book three. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, this yeah. is your punishment. You need to eat yeah. your
1: peas now. Sit down. Yeah. So listen, listen, listen up, Dad.
0: Joe. Listen up, Kelly Joe. You should have bought book one and two when we told you to.
2: <laughs> well, and and you know I can't talk about book three without giving away like the major spoiler yeah. for the end of book two, which you know. So I guess if you're listening to this and you you want to read this, I would suggest yeah. pausing. skip
1: like like yeah, skip like ninety seconds to two minutes ahead. Yeah.
2: Yeah. No. Yeah. I would I would totally do that. Yeah. yeah, no, so, So. you know, if, if you're not familiar with the series, uh, it's about a young woman named Sambuquino Bacalhura. She's the first private investigator in her world. And her and her partner in crime solving, Eld, uh, kick off the series getting blackmailed by the world's largest largest trading company. But what they don't realize is Buck kind of reverse engineered this so that she could flip the tables on them. She has this grand scheme to upend her corrupt society. She grew up on the streets. Um she you know she's seen how bad things are and she realizes as she learns to read and then she turns into an autodidact that just consumes whole libraries that the world's really being controlled by these two warring factions of gods uh the dead gods and the new goddess called cirrus and so book one is kind of her getting power and book two is she has a position on the board of this trading company she thinks now great i can go ahead and start pulling the strings uh, and then, you know, chaos kind of ensues. Uh, she discovers that, uh, you know, power is a, uh, in her words, a conniving bitch and, uh, really <laughs> messes with her and kind of throws her into confusion. And then throughout the series, it really is the story of this woman who thinks she can do it all on her own, realizing in book two that she does need her partner, uh, Eld, to, uh, help her out. He's not just, uh, you know, an amazing swordsman, but he's actually a friend and she didn't realize that she needed friends. And then huge spoiler warning, um, you know, they're kind of back to back at the end of book two and Eld sacrifices himself for her. And, you know, I've got a lot of feedback from readers who were really upset and mad at me. And I don't, I'm not one of those writers who is like, I'm going to put you through the rainer and my character's through the rainer and I'm like gleeful about it. Um, mm. You know, I, I'm not that way at all. Like it was, it was really emotionally impactful for me to write that, but I also feel like, you know, people get to make those kind of decisions and, you know, we see it in real life and I think we should see it on the page and El knew what he was doing. And so in book three, at the beginning, you know, Buck is kind of trying to pick up the pieces. Um, she's has more power than she ever had before. She finally realizes that power corrupts and she needs to be careful, but she's also starting to realize she can't do this by herself. And her best friend is now dead and gone. And she's torn between getting revenge on, on the megalomaniac who killed him and you know finishing her job which is destroy the gods give her society a chance to to build from the ground up and so that's kind of the 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 background story of it but I mean there's a ton of adventure in here it's very fast paced there's a lot of heart it's a lot of fun there's you know sea adventures there's hidden libraries there's mage battles, there's all sorts of stuff going on, all the bells and whistles, and it builds up to a huge kind of firework display of a, of a third act that was a ton of fun to write. Um, from the the earlier reviews, I think it's going to be a ton of fun to read, but that's where we're at with the memory and the blood. It's kind of Buck with her back against the wall, alone, trying to figure out what she does next.
0: Dun, dun, dun.
1: <laughs> well, you know, kind of um, thinking about going back to what you said before about not being the sort of writer who likes to like I I will now I will drink my readers tears and like I'm gonna put you through the (laughs) ringer I've always found that to be like a very weird move and I I don't know um god this is gonna sound like such an old lady thing to say but fine old lady time um like I don't know if it's like a generational move because it does seem like comparatively younger writers, um, like writers who are in their their 30s and their 20s and so on, many of whom kind of cut their teeth learning the ropes of how to structure story and, and do characterization and compelling dialogue and whatnot, um, like through writing fan fiction and communities of their own friends who had sort of like mutual loves of certain tropes and stuff like that. And that as a subset community seems to like really reward the idea of like biggest feels possible, like make me drink the tragedy. Um, And I've always found that to be a little weird. And maybe it just means that I'm um, kind of a pansy when it comes to (laughs) these sorts of things. But I don't like hurting my characters, although I do it. Um, and I don't like hurting my reader, although also do it. Um, <laughs> and like, I guess I would be in a position similar to yours if, if readers reached out to me with sort of like, ah, why did you do this? Like I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> I, on the burning I, coals of the agony that you have laid. Yeah. So, so you think younger writers do that? I don't know. Is I mean, that that, that that is an impression I get. And it's informed in part because um, working with my students, a lot of them – Talk to me pretty openly about what they do and don't like in writing. And there is a huge subset of students who are like, make me hurt is the thing that they want. And I'm like, really?
2: Well, okay. Weird
1: hill to die on. But yeah, like there's a there's a tremendous subset of like late teenage aged early 20s readers anyway, some of whom are also writers who come from the school of I will drinks the agony
2: yeah. Well there's 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 this whole book talk kind of subsection where, you know, people have kind of these public emotional reactions to books like you know, like weeping and things like that. And yeah. honestly, like I, I'll admit I don't quite get it. Um, but I know that a lot of folks their age totally get it they find it really therapeutic. Yeah. So so that's cool. But I mean I I, I <laughs> so I know exactly what you're talking about, Tracy. Yeah, but at the yeah. same time, like I'm remembering growing up listening to I say growing up, but I mean like I was in my 20s, but like to Jim Butcher, like gleefully hackle about like how, you know, Harry Dresden oh, is sure. really getting put through the ringer. So, I mean, I think there's always been that subset. And I mean, everybody's totally different. It's just, I, we, I mean, I'm like, it, oh, I'm, oh, I'm raised
1: them this way, so to speak. I, Going back to your Jim
0: Butcher observation changes, changes destroyed me. Changes, I, I – oh, my god. Changes was was brutal. But I don't think Butcher is alone. Like I think – and and I would not necessarily put Butcher in the young author category at this point. Yeah. No, I think it's still the um, yeah. But I remember having conversations with Tad Elliott uh, – or Tad Elliott. Kate Elliott and Tad Williams uh, about weird, these things because like, – Yeah, I know. Chimera I you just made there. I did, that. It was yeah, interesting. I did, yeah. the, <laughs> I did the Big Bang Theory where <laughs> I, I meant to I say, say hi and too, hello right? and, I, and it ended up high-low. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I, I, remember having a conversation with them because their books were the, uh, some of the first that I had read where I was getting so angry at the decisions that the characters were making that were so bad for them and for everybody else. And I went to like, I'm like, why did you do this? This is terrible. I was so angry. And they're just like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it is like a, it's like a, a almost like a Palpatine ca- cackle, you know? I don't know. Yeah. Okay, so so I, don't, it, I, yeah. I think I mean, there okay, is so a, there's a subset of authors who do that, and I don't think age has anything to do with it necessarily. Yeah,
1: okay. So taking the generational piece away from it then, or or at least modifying that part of my thesis, maybe it's that we've done it for long enough, as genre writers in particular, that we've sort of raised people like, this is mother's milk. Mother's milk is the destruction <laughs> and the pain and the bad decisions. Here you go, baby. Like, the Give them a mother. bottle and tuck the them in for father. bed. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but it is kind of wild. And uh, there is, I think, also something deeply satisfying about seeing a character, whether it's caused by that sort of like deeply personal pain or just like the crazy odds arrayed against them or whatever, but that back against the wall stuff that you're talking about, Ryan. I think there's something really satisfying about seeing a character in that position, either because of how we imprint on them with a sort of like, yes, yes, I too have felt this way, or a sort of I cannot begin to imagine what it would be like to feel this way. How could you possibly deal with this, overcome this, fight your way out of it?
0: I think it's brave on your part, Ryan. I really do. Mm -hmm. To kill kill a main character is huge.
2: It is, it is. It was, it was a tough call. Like, you know, we are kind of my editor and and my agent at the time were going back and forth and they were like, well, like, you know, once you do this and I was like, yeah, I know I get it. Um, but you know, I think there is, there's this, you know, one, there's this kind of like all is lost moment, which, you know, if you're structuring a novel, um, you kind of want that at the end of act two going into the beginning of act three, And so, you know, end of book two is kind of that moment. So there was that, but I mean, it really was, I wasn't sure until I got to the very end. I'm a, I'm a plotter, but I still wasn't sure until the very end, exactly how that was going to shake out. Like, you know, Elb didn't have to die. Just when we got to that point, it was like, I don't see how they can get out of this. There's only one way that I can see that they can get out of this. Is this how they get out of this? And, um, and being like, okay, yep, here we go. Like, this is, this is happening. So that's what I mean about like, you know, like I didn't take like great pleasure out of it. I was just like, poof, and then I knew that it opened up a lot of, from a writer perspective, I knew it opened up a lot of interesting avenues for book three, because, you know, I'm, even though I just said, I, I do a lot of plotting and I do, I'm always character driven, like character comes to me first. I, I think I talked about that before, you know, my Buck kind of came into my head as a voice before I ever came up with this series. And in tandem with this like, hey, up in this corrupt society plot, there's also this theme of like young woman realizing that, you know, she can't go it alone. And so book three was really her discovering that and like not discovering it more as, as realizing it. And so, you know, Eld's sacrifice was kind of the catalyst for all of that so it made a lot of sense it was it was you know supported by a lot of different things and it took the book and the character where they needed to go but it was still rough and and i do feel bad like you know I'll, i think i said the other day sorry not sorry with like a smiley face to someone who said like you know who reached out to me about you know book two because they were reading it in preparation for for the new book and um and I kind of meant it, but then, like, I think at the end, I, I I kind of reached out to them on the side and was like, "Hey, you know, like, <laughs> I'm putting up a, a bold front here, but I get it. And I I do apologize." It's it's interesting
0: because right now there's a lot of conversation going about, around about you know this particular topic of killing characters. Mm-hmm. I, I years ago, oh gosh, and. You know, time just kind of fogs, and and you don't remember. Like, like there's the meme that's going around that says, you know, how long ago was uh, 2005? Oh, that was like six years ago. No, no, it's 2020. It was not six years ago. Uh, but a couple years back, I uh,
1: it's 2022. Yeah, I know. I'm just gonna, I think I said
0: okay. 2022, didn't I? No, you, you didn't. But it's okay. Ah, well, again, I don't know. You're really
1: just you're demonstrating your point, I, and yeah, I, I admire I, the commitment to it. I is really what's happening. Am.
0: Anyway, a few years ago. <laughs> Apex Magazine was doing a Kickstarter, and uh, one of the goals to unlock was a, an essay about tropes from me. And so I ended up having to write a tropes essay because they did hit the the milestone, and I ended up writing this thing. But one of, one of the tropes really in, in lots of fiction is introducing new side characters just so we could kill them. You know, you see it in television shows all the time. You've got your established cast. And then suddenly the old friend that you've never, ever heard of in 22 seasons is there. And then, you know, something bad happens and they die. So, it, it, you know, the the criticism that's going on right now is actually about Stranger Things and the Duffer Brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people are going, you do introduce side characters and you kill them, but you're not killing any of the main characters that we see. Like, when are we going to get some? Like, people are wanting heartbreak. They're like, you know, we want to see Steve die heroically or we want to see <laughs> this one. Like, they want to see these things. and And, and it kind of goes to Tracy's point about, like, hurt me. Like some yeah. people are going hurt me, like kill a character. That I love. So number one, I think it's, I think it's huge when you don't introduce a character specifically to kill them. And when you do totally. make that, that really difficult decision of in order to move this story forward, in order to have this character grow and evolve and have to kind of go through something, I'm going to have to kill this
2: other character that's been around for a while.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That's huge. Yeah, It is huge. I mean, And I'll just say, you know, for Stranger Things, it totally ruined the last episode, my enjoyment of it, because I was worried that they were going to kill Steve, because Steve's my favorite character on there. And he's my favorite because there's nothing special about him. Like, he has no powers. He's not super smart. The only thing Steve does is he shows up. And he shows up time and time and time again. And I think that's, like, such an awesome character, you know, trait to have. And And he gets uh, the shit kicked out of him. He does. He does. And yet he's, really he's always there. And yeah. um, I just think yeah. it's so wholesome. And like, you know, I'm not like, you know, if you've read my books, you know that there's tons of swears and violence and stuff like that. So it's not like I'm like over here holding down the, the wholesome, wholesome side of the genre. But I do think, you know, especially in an age where there's just so much, you know, nihilism and and just skepticism of of our society, having a character like that is awesome. So it totally ruined it for me that they were talking about like, oh, this is our Game of Thrones season, which it really wasn't. Spoilers. Um and yeah. And then yeah, they just introduce some side characters and kill them off. And like, you know, I think they had their like, you know, moment of triumph. But I do agree, I, I kind of get that criticism of you know, bringing people in from the outside because you're not going to harm that main cast. And for me, again, it's not about harming. It's just like they're like the story insulation characters. Itself? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I, I, you know, I I agree with you on Steve. I I thought in the beginning he was a dick, and oh, he oh yeah, right. I, I um.
1: I remember vividly a colleague of mine at work when, uh, it, you know, the first season of stranger things was, was done and season two was starting. Uh, and I was, I, as I always am, cause I'm bad at TV. We talk about this a lot. I was finally starting stranger things season one, right. As you know, most people were, we're getting towards the end of watching season two. And, uh, I remember talking to him over lunch once and he mentioned offhandedly that Steve was his favorite character. And I about spit my lunch out because at that point I was maybe three or four episodes into season one. And I was like, how the fuck is this guy your favorite character? But like he's he's an absolute toxic douchebag. He like he, he vandalizes, you know, the 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 marquee with stuff about Nancy being a slut and all this sort of stuff. Um, like he's he's Actually, just awful. Yeah, well, yeah. but he, he supervised in a managerial sort of way. Um, wow. And, yeah, and so there's there's all this stuff about him where he is he's really built to be an antagonist figure. And the fact that the Duffer brothers have been able to turn that narrative and to make it feel earned is really quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. And going back to your point as well, Ryan, the idea that, like, and they're doing it with a guy where there is – nothing's spe- but he doesn't hold like the secret mystical key to a thing he's the not part of smarter. the original kids he's not part of an, an original ideas. group of friends yeah. there's no sense of like earned loyalty to him as a person in fact if anything he has to earn his way into the group because everybody knows he's been a douche um and so it's this really remarkable arc that they've managed to build around a character who all the architecture was against him from the start
0: and in, totally. I don't know how far into the series you are, Tracy, but in, in – in I, I haven't done any of season four. OK. In four, there there is a point where, where basically Nancy sees him now. She sees him. you know, And, and I mean that in, in every literal sense. It's like, oh, yeah, he's not that same person that he was back in the day. Mm-hmm. And I think it's Jonathan says something snarky about Steve and, and Nancy corrects him and stops him and says, actually, he's grown. He's grown up a lot. Yeah. Like she sees him she sees the that arc
2: i i think that's why he's probably my favorite because i am like a character driven person like i said and and you're totally right tracy like at that moment where he goes back to the marquee and he offers to clean it up himself and nobody's around nobody sees it and he doesn't talk about it he just does Mm -hmm. it because he knows he needs to do the work and then he goes and apologizes to nancy you know kind of like without any without any reservations that to me was the point where, and then, you know, he stays and he fights the Demogorgon, even though he has no idea what he's doing, what he just walked into. Yeah, and he's like, I came
1: moment. here to punch Jonathan, and I guess now instead <laughs> I have to fight this thing. Whoops. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, totally. So, I mean, like, he's there and he's like, hey, I'm sorry, and that's that's all there is, and, uh, and then he stays. And that to me was the moment where I was like, wow. And you don't, you know, I think the other thing is, you don't see that often in fiction. You don't see a really long kind of slow burn arc where somebody changes like that and puts in the work to do the change. Mm -hmm. And so that, that to me is really great. I mean, there's so many things. We could talk about stranger things all day. There's a lot of good (laughs) stuff they're doing. I have some quibbles with season four, um, but seasons one through three are just chef's kiss.
1: Yeah. I think, um, Going back to – I've been thinking a lot about the tropes thing that you were talking about a minute ago, Patrick, about like the – killing those sort of like insulation characters as like secondary characters who show up to kind of demonstrate emotional investment and now stab. Right. Um, So we got – there's this narrative that keeps getting pushed back and forth in genre a lot um, in particular. And I think it has its roots in people like George R. R. Martin and whatnot. And there's this like weird looming notion of authenticity, like with a capital A, that like somehow genre literature, and I think particularly fantasy or like military SF and stuff, owes something to authenticity with a capital A or realism with a capital R, which is like fucking ridiculous because you're like riding dragons
0: and shit fighting and stuff, but whatever. Yeah. Um, Your magic <laughs> system has to be real. It has to make sense.
1: Right. And what I'm getting to here is the idea that you can use the weird authenticity or realism thing to justify all sorts of stuff. Um, it's been used to justify like, no, we have to have rape here for reasons or like, no, we have to have, you know, racial enmity for reasons or we can't have melanated persons for reasons or, you know, so there's that class of stuff. But I think also it can be applied, I think, more ingenuously towards things like, no, characters have to make choices and those choices have to have consequences of some kind. And those consequences are not always neat and they're not always tidy and they can result in situations that aren't ideal and that maybe can't be fixed and there's no way around it. And that to try to engineer the story to make an exception to that rule is really where you lose that sort of idyllic notion of capital A or capital R authenticity or realism, right? Like that's a bigger issue than the idea of like, no, we we have to have the chain mail be spaced precisely this way in order to ensure whatever.
2: I, you know, I think, I I totally understand what you're saying. I think it really comes down to what story are you trying to tell at the beginning? And then how true are you to that promise to the reader all the way through? Like, you know, George R. R. Barton in the first book, uh, Game of Thrones, he he tells us what kind of world it's in, and he stays true to it to the very end when, very old spoiler, you know, Ned Stark loses his head. and in that moment, you know, kind of officially kicks off the the next several years of grim, dark fantasy, which I think a lot of folks misunderstood what was going on in that first book and took it to different areas. But that's a whole other podcast. Um, but, you know, I think I think like Stranger Things and why I said it, I wasn't really happy going into that last episode is they're telling a different kind of story, like things bad things do happen you know, side characters do die. But at the end, it's this, hey, the power of a core group of people who individually are kind of nerds and outcasts, but together form a greater whole, being able to to win and triumph in the end. And that's why I was really worried going into the last one, because I was like, you know, if you kill a bunch of these people just to kill a bunch of these people, like that's not the story I signed up for. Like, I didn't stay here for four seasons to watch that yeah, story yeah. play out. And... and it- yeah, and I don't want to spoil anything now that I know you didn't see it, Tracy. But like, it doesn't totally happen. Like, they, they do stay mostly true to what they were. But the, just the fact that in the lead up to that, all the signaling was that they weren't going to like, really was a buzzkill for me going into that final episode. Well, I th- yeah, I, and go. I, I, I do want
0: to throw one thing up yeah. first, Tracy. Yeah. Uh, you you talked about the the death of Ned Stark starting a grimdark fantasy thing, it also started a bunch of really great memes about how Sean Bean (laughs) always dies. His characters always die. Mm. And there was a great promo for, he was doing a show for TNT about um, uh, undercover police work or something like that and in the promo you know they're pitching him the idea and he's like okay and then you know in the first episode i die and they're like no 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 this is like a series you're going to be in the whole series he's like okay at which point does my character die and like no no you know you're 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 going to be in the whole series it's you're the main character in the series and he's like i don't understand when when do i die and it was just it just became a meme so anyway yeah.
2: Yeah. You know, yeah.
0: have to have to interject the levity there because we're getting a little heavy. But go ahead, <laughs> Tracy. You, you had something you we're going to.
1: No, i was going to drag it back down again. Um, no. Yeah. But I think that the complaint about you only ever kill these sort of um, more emotionally disposable secondary characters. Why don't you kill any of the central characters kind of complaint? I do wonder if people know what they, they really understand what they're asking for when they make that complaint. Because it goes back to what you were talking about with the idea of this is this is what the show understands itself to be and has been from the beginning. Like, do you on a certain level kind of cut the legs out from the thesis of your series if you're like, and now, um, you let's put names up on a dartboard and start chucking darts at them and go like, we're going to kill these three main nerd characters because it would really hit people in the fields. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, would... At a certain point, are you still equipped to be the story you set out to be, even with the idea that the world is bad or is being infiltrated by bad things that bad people want to see happen? Um, Do you still get the other half of that narrative? But if good people who believe in each other and in themselves stand up to it, we might still have a chance. Does that continue to mean anything if you're like, but the fans want us to make them cry more? And so at a certain point, I think you have to trust storytellers to just know their story. And I do wonder sometimes if that like super permeable barrier between storytellers and their audiences that we have now tempts people or scares people too much into kind of yielding to the tides of the audience.
0: I'm wondering if all the people who write these stories now uh, can tie it all back to and blaming it on Stan Lee and Marvel Comics. Okay. Uh, the idea of like
1: all deaths are undoable by ways of multiverse. No, no, no. There was one death that wasn't
0: undoable. No, there was one. There was a huge death in in Spider Man, back in the day, the day Gwen Stacy died. Mm. No one saw that coming. No one saw that coming. (laughs) And you and and I mean they kept her dead for a really really long time. It wasn't it wasn't. I want to say it wasn't until the '80s or '90s that they they toyed with you know clone of Gwen Stacy and oh Gwen Stacy was in an alternate you and like they sure do but I mean for a good thirty ish years or more you had that impact of Gwen Stacy uh, mm-hmm. who you know Peter Parker's girlfriend uh, they're in love everything's great but her dad doesn't like him and he's Spider Man and blah 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 and then you know. What was it uh was it norman osmore was the green goblin finds yeah. out who he is and, and who gwen is and yeah boom And kind of you know, girlfriend I, yeah i mean if you look at if you look at especially the filmmakers and and those kinds of creatives today i would be willing to bet you that all of those people were influenced by stuff like that happening could be could be oh <sighs> So you have a new puppy. Let's talk about your
1: puppy. <laughs> you
0: this is this is a good puppy time. To, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You didn't just introduce the puppy just to mess with us later, did you?
1: Oh no, don't kill the dog. There's no killing of the dog here. It's not that kind of podcast.
2: No, it's not. It is not. It's
1: the Mad Magazine um, cover podcast.
2: No, you you can't kill a dog unless you're like Darth Vader or the evil overlord. That's the that's the only way. Um, yeah, no. So we, we got a, we got a new dog. Uh, his name's Remus. Um, he is a eight month old boxer pity mix. Um, we had, so we used to have two dogs. We had two dogs for a long time. Um, our boxer, unfortunately, you know, he just, he was 14 and, uh, he passed away last summer. So, um, we had a, we have a pity rescue pity. Uh, we've had her since she was 18 months old and she's 10 now, but still acts like she's two. And so, (laughs) You know we gave her some time to be the only dog for a while but uh we really wanted to get another one wanted to get a younger dog to keep her young and um this uh this place actually right over the hill from us just happened to they're um they're actually a veteran rescue place and uh happened to get this this boxer mix in we went and checked him out and uh actually just a few days ago and he's the sweetest dog like totally chill leans against you. I mean, tons of puppy energy, but, like, not a mean bone in his body, just very, very happy go lucky and we came back the next day and got him, and so he's been here for 24 hours, and, um, (laughs) our, uh, our pity Zena, she's kind of, like, who are you? I guess I'm okay with you. Like, they get along, but she's just kind of, like, I'm gonna ignore you for a little while. You got too much energy, and he's just, like, running over to her and just all happy, like, hey, who are you? Let's be friends, so... It's uh, <laughs> it's still new, but it's it, it's been a lot of fun. I'm glad I'm glad we picked him up, and you know I don't have anything against people buying you know puppies. Uh, that our, our boxer we we bought, um, but having rescued a couple of dogs, it's just it's really rewarding and it's a lot of fun to see this dog like get home for the first time and be really appreciative of that. And so, yeah, yeah. so big big playful puppy in the life now. And did you guys name?
0: Name him Remus or is that did that come from the rescue?
2: No, so we named him his, his, his rescue name was Meatball. And uh, <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> he's, a bit, That's he's a bit of a goof. And uh I was like you know, I'm I'd like to say that I'm like that kind of goof myself, but I'm a little too serious to, to have a dog named Meatball. You just
1: had to pause and say, like, could I see myself shouting across the dog part? Meatball, come here, meatball. <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's that's exactly what my dad said. He's like, Oh man, if he ever got lost, could you just imagine running through like the neighborhood <laughs> screaming meatball at the top meatball. of your lungs? And I was like, Yeah, no. so, um, so, so we renamed him Remus, uh, for a couple of reasons. And, uh, I'm not even sure honestly if meatball was his name because this rescue got him from another rescue down in San Antonio. They kind of have a deal where they bring up dogs from the south, up to
1: yeah, yeah. Them
2: out. And uh, he seems to be picking up on it pretty quickly. Treats definitely help, but uh, yeah, mm-hmm. that's his name. Yeah,
0: I, yeah. I, I can't prove it, but I think that the rescues give them cute names. Because uh, as an example, Shadow, who passed earlier this year, my cat of twenty odd years or more, uh, was Snowball. So he's a black what? cat. Yeah, they had him <laughs> as Snowball in the in the. Uh, that's in the just false advertising. Thing. Yeah, and I was like, no, no, that ain't ain't sticking. I never never once called him that. I hardly ever called him Shadow either, but anyway.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) One of my sisters-in-law for a long time has taken um, pregnant female cats from the local shelter and had them in her house for when they kitten and uh, through the process of weaning and things. So she's had something like, God, I don't know, 10 or 12 litters that have come through her house in the last several years, Um, like a total of... Ninety cats, I think. And like the recipe doesn't
0: know that she's just taking these cats?
1: Uh, no, maybe they they give them to her. It's a whole thing. <laughs> and like she's she's considering a temporary retirement from from kitten homing and things because it's just it's a lot. Um, they are very messy and stinky, and you know, it's a whole lot of work. But she knows from experience that um, in general, she isn't allowed to name the kittens. There's like a plan for what names need to be used. Uh, And apparently the way that it works, and it could be different from Rescue to Rescue, is like they have um, an alphabet. That they move through. And it's kind of like how you name hurricanes, I guess, if you're like in the National (laughs) Weather Service. But there's like a a, a sequence in the alphabet that they move through. And they've got a pre-generated list of names, male and female. And you just start applying those names based on the order of intake for animals, or if it's the case of like litters of puppies and kittens, the order of birth. Um, if the, if it's a litter of puppies and kittens, they have subsets of names that are like themed because they seem to find homes faster. If it's like here is the the candy yeah. ones, it's we've got marketing. stickers it's and Kit marketing. Kat and this it's and that.
0: Marketing. Yeah.
1: Right? Yeah, it's totally a marketing move. Um, and she was quite delighted because this most recent litter of kittens that she homed, they finally were like, we trust you to do names, and so she ended up being able to name all of them and thought that that That's was nice. that was sort of fun.
0: Laura, oh, she, Laura Resnick yeah. does that. Laura Resnick does that. She she fosters uh, cats for the local rescue, mm-hmm. and yeah. nurses them back to health if they're sick. If they're yeah. having babies, she takes care of the babies. She does yeah. all that stuff. It's good, cool. It's it's that's a calling in my
2: opinion. Mm-hmm. It is. That's a because I couldn't do it. I would end up keeping them all, and it would yeah, right, exactly the situation really quickly. <laughs>
0: Same. <laughs> Big okay. same. Oh, look, the rescue is calling me. Uh, Decline. Delete. I'm going to keep Straight to voicemail that one.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I would probably have a big problem with letting go, too. Uh, I also know, like, no one who has ever kept the rescue's name for a pet. No. Um, like, I have two dogs, both of whom were rescues, and a cat, also a rescue at, at present. And uh, the, the first dog, who we call Little John, his name was Gable. And we were like, what? That's, that's just a no. That's a huge no. That's not going to work. And uh, the other dog, who we call Gwen, she was Kiki which was an even bigger no, like it was K-I-K-I. Um, in fact, it was such a no that even the the rescue agency itself, when they brought her out to us on the lead so she could meet our other dog, Little John, and see if they got along. And we kind of, when we adopted our second dog, we brought Little John with us and we kind of let him choose. So we just like bring out every dog. It seems like a reasonable match and we'll let him choose his roommate. Um, And they were like, we're so sorry. Her name is Kiki. It was just the next one on the list. You can call her anything you want. (laughs) And so then out she comes. And Hobbs uh, used to be Hunter, Um, which, you know, although it's accurate because he's a pretty good mouser, uh, didn't work for me in a number of levels because every little white boy in my son's and daughter's classes is Hunter. It's like the attendance roster must be like, Here's Corwin, and here's Deirdre, and here's 8,000 hunters. <laughs> Everyone is hunter now. So I don't know what was happening between 10 and 15 years ago when people were having their babies, but like, wow,
0: but so just many seen, hunters. You should have seen all the kids in Tennessee named Peyton. Oh, yeah.
2: Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so before we get off the subject of dogs, I have to ask, is little John a little dog or a big dog?
1: That is a wonderfully non-Euclidean question, and the answer is Yes. He is a uh, basset hound mix who weighs 70 pounds. So on one 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 hand, he's very big because he's a 70-pound dog. On the other hand, he comes up below your knee. But because he's a basset hound mix, he's very long. So when he was younger, he's he's like 14 now, so he can't do this anymore. Uh, When he was younger and his back legs were stronger, he would stand up on his hind legs and he would put his paws on my six-foot-tall husband's shoulders. (laughs) And so, yes – He is both little and big at the same time. Um, Yeah, so we have uh, this sort of, like, rule in our household that all animals have to have both a literary name slash a joke name. And his is both because, you know, Little John sort of Robin Hood reference. But also at the same time, like... We were remembering the hype man, Little John, from, if you remember your, yeah, you do, you do. Um, and so basically he has, like, the same barks for everything. And we just sort of imagined his dialogue over it where everything was like, yeah, what? <laughs> okay. And, like, every time he barks at anything, we just kind of do Little John rapper voice because we're giant dorks. Yep.
0: And okay. now for your earworm. And now Robin the earworms. Little John walking through the forest, laughing back and forth, what the other got to say. Why you got to be like this?
1: Why man? Why you got to be like this? Uh, I think we need to give Ryan his, his chance to do a pick of the week and escape. <laughs> like he's, he needs the exit hatch. Picks of
0: the week.
1: All right. So, Patrick, see if you can earn back from from your bad behavior. What's your pick of the week? <laughs>
0: Uh, have you guys seen John Wick? I saw the mm-hmm. first one. So you See, haven't seen two. the third one?
1: No, I have not seen John Wick 47 or any of that. The, the
0: third yeah. one was really cool because uh, uh, of the dogs, I thought. They had the trained mm. dogs that would fight and do stuff. Anyway, so there's a show on FX now called The Old Man. Mm, okay. And it's also on Hulu. And this is Jeff Bridges. So this is the Big Lebowski, right? Okay. And he's pl- he's playing this, this veteran of the uh the afghan wars essentially he was like a cia guy in afghanistan during the russian invasion and occupation of afghanistan so we're talking like the 80s not yeah not and now now he's an old man you Mm -hmm. know living in america and he's got two dogs and uh apparently he did some stuff and so when they come after him uh you know he's got skills and he's trained these dogs. And, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's really cool. It's like it's like when the first time you see these two these two gorgeous dogs and he you know they just follow him around. They're very loving and everything. And then someone tries to do something and he says something. And those dogs are like whoo, and they go after him. I'm like holy shit, it's John Wick. You know. <laughs> so this is a this is a very intense show. Uh, it's very spy versus spy. It's uh, he's an old man now uh his wife is gone she passed away his daughter is out somewhere they both have assumed names and identities and stuff for their own protection uh there's lots of people who are after them uh and stuff just happens from there and he's kind of on the run now with these two dogs and then he meets uh, a woman and he has a connection with her but then the guys are still coming after him and it's just it's really really intense it's a good show uh as of this recording i want to say the whole thing hasn't dropped yet by the time this goes out the whole thing might be dropped on hulu and you could just go watch Mm -hmm. the whole thing uh but it's really happens to
1: these dogs i'm out just like they're not allowed to hurt the dogs those dogs are
0: fairly fucking awesome okay all right so far they're 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 making it through every episode so and they're doing they're badasses too uh but jeff bridges he just plays that old man part so well at this point like Mm -hmm. you know i remember him in true grit like he did such a fantastic job in true grit and you know he's he's still he's still that old man (laughs) you know it's just it's like perfect casting i don't know anyway uh it's 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 a pretty good show go go check it out ryan how about you
2: well, so I guess I'll keep it with the, um, I had a couple in mind, but I'll keep it with the uh, the creature theme that we have going on here. Um, so, and I'm going to take it in a different direction, uh, a very calming, soothing uh, watch, which is this uh, show, it's a British show, um, it's available on PBS, and you can stream it, and you can totally donate to PBS for like five bucks or ten bucks or something, watch everything you want to watch, and then, you know kill it at that point uh, but you could also support local programming so anyway with my PBS plug aside it's called All Creatures Great and Small um, it's a show that takes place in between World War I and World War II in kind of the, uh, the English countryside and it's about a young Scottish guy um, who uh, becomes a vet can't find work anywhere uh, you know it's kind of like right around that depression era and finally finds this little village you know outside of scotland and england very much duck out of water because he comes from the city as well and it's a rural area and the vet is kind of this crotchety older dude and it's a very nice cast there's um a lot of uh strong uh women actors in it as well so there's there's something for everyone there it's one of those shows like you know similar to downton abbey but without the rape thankfully um that uh, that you can watch, knowing that like it's good people trying to do good things, and they encounter issues and problems that aren't life and death, although sometimes they are, because it's a it's a veterinary show. Um, but uh, it's it's all around good stuff. And there's two seasons out now. They're making the third one that I think is supposed to come up this fall.
0: Yeah. Very cool. Nice. So I like uh, that you can watch it on PBS, and you don't have to get BritBox.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That is cool. One less streaming service to have to, well, we've already, we've had the streaming service conversation many times. And it's only getting worse yeah no kidding um so for me if I'm thinking in terms of if you if your appetite is whetted for secondary world epic fantasy vibes uh, with action and adventure and things like that and it's it's making you want to run out to grab Ryan's work as well it should um you may want to get that in other means too so I'm gonna recommend a game that is not new by any means this is a tabletop game that came out probably about 13 years ago or so, um, but it's still widely available. There have been a couple different editions of it. It's got some nice expansions, uh, and it's pretty easy to pick up with some solid mechanics. It's called Lords of Waterdeep, and those of you who know your Dungeons & Dragons stuff will recognize Waterdeep from the Forgotten Realms. Basic idea is... In Shea Townsend, we've been getting Deirdre into worker placement games because once she understands how worker placement works, there's a whole other field of stuff she can start playing that she hasn't done before. And so we, we've we been doing a few worker placements with her, and Lords of Waterdeep has become one of her favorites. Uh, basic idea too, right? behind it. Yep. Sorry. Which what? I have that game. Yeah. Game. Yeah. Basic idea behind it is you have a character that represents a, a uh, leader of a faction that is in Waterdeep. You might be the Harpers, you might be the Silver Silverstars, uh, you could be the Zentarum, you could be any number of things. It's sort of abstracted out to some extent, but basically you've got a map of Waterdeep, you've got a bunch of agents who you place different places to get you different sorts of resources so you can fulfill different types of quests, many of which are secret missions to undermine other factions in various ways. If all of this sounds way too Forgotten Realms and D&D to you, don't worry about it. You actually don't need to understand anything about Dungeons & Dragons or know anything about Forgotten Realms to play Lords of Waterdeep. But it has some nice flavor text elements that are kind of winks to people who are into that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking for a solid um, plays in about 45 minutes to an hour worker placement game that's got some solid expansions, Teaches really easily um, and is really forgiving based on the number of players you have and players' levels of experience. Uh, you should check out Lords of Waterdeep. It's a good game. Yeah. Alright. So we have made it, folks. Let's uh let's make sure that folks know where to find you and all of your cool stuff and the inevitable barrage of puppy pictures and updates.
2: <laughs> yeah, my, my Twitter feed has a uh, very heavy puppy count right now and probably will for the foreseeable future. Um, so, yeah, you can, I'm, I'm really easy to find as long as you know how to spell my name, which is Um That's my website, ryanvanloan.com. That's my Twitter handle at Loan. That's my Instagram handle at ryanvanloan. And for my sins, I have been getting into TikTok over the last couple of months (laughs) here and have a number of videos up there. So you can also find me at Ryan Van Loon on TikTok. Nice. All
1: right. It's been awesome having you, Ryan. Thanks.
2: Yeah, thank you all. This has been great.
0: Well, time, probably past time for a new bumper. If you liked this episode, thanks. (laughs) We liked making it for you. There's lots of ways you can support us moving forward if you did like this episode. You could give us a review at Apple or Google Podcasts on Stitcher, Spotify, etc. There's lots of places out there. Wherever you listen to this podcast would be a great spot to go. Give us a couple stars, write a little review, tell folks how great we are. It would help. You could follow us on Twitter. Our account there is at FN underscore podcast. If you do that, please help us boost the signal by retweeting our stuff. You could take a look at our Facebook page and click like on it. Eh, I don't do a lot there, but it's a necessary evil. You could back us over at patreon.com slash functional nerds and throw a couple bucks our way each month. You could tell your friends about us and turn them onto the show. Any or all of that would be awesome, and I would really appreciate it, Todd. Now that this episode is over, you could also consider checking out our friends over at Beyond the Trope. Giles and Michelle put out an episode a week, just like we do, and they talk to writers, artists, and creatives from all over the place. They have a huge back catalog of episodes and have a lot of fun doing it, which comes through in their weekly episodes. So check them out over at beyondthetrope.com. As always, thanks for listening. And don't forget to tip your server on the way out. Mr. Carpiers, you got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe.
1: Oh, for God's sake, Patrick Louise. (laughs) that's probably a good enough signal (laughs) the whiz bang and the gosh wow and the sense of wonder stuff i'm so excited